Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Robinson, and I'm joined by Rachel Washburn, Major General James Spider Marks, Peter Chur, and today we have a special guest, Lieutenant General Frank Kearney. Today, we will be discussing the sanctions against Iran, and more specifically, the waivers given to seven countries that allow for more lenient trade relations with Iran. We discuss how this geopolitical flashpoint may play out in the future. We also talk about the midterm election results and how they are affecting the market, as well as any impact they may have on the geopolitical stage. But first, we'd be remiss if we didn't recognize this weekend, as it is the 100th anniversary of the end of World War I. The reverence paid on Armistice Day was later renamed Veterans Day, and now we take time to thank those who have served in our nation's armed services. This is especially heartfelt here at Academy Securities, as we are a veteran-owned and over 43% staffed by military veterans. We appreciate all the great Americans that have served before us. We also salute those that continue to serve and especially extend our thoughts and prayers to those serving in harm's way right now. They continue to provide for the securities and freedoms we as Americans enjoy every day. Now, back to our geopolitical content. I'm going to hand it off to Army veteran Rachel Washburn. Rachel, could you lead us off? General Kearney, I'd really appreciate your perspective on the significance of the eight countries that did ultimately receive waivers after the administration issued the new round of sanctions, those countries being South Korea, Taiwan, Turkey, Greece, Japan, China, India, and Italy. Yeah, I think as we look at that, we have to take them each individually. I mean, clearly, China has the opportunity to just say no. How embarrassing would it be to have sanctions and then have uh, the second largest economic power in the world just ignore us and do whatever they want, similar to what they do to some degree with, with North Korea? So China is a special case. Obviously, we want them to honor the sanctions, which means a waiver gives them some time. In fact, I doubt that we will ever uh, hold them completely accountable. We are also still trying to get a, uh, an economic deal with them. So I think uh, anything we do that pressurizes that opportunity might not be helpful at this particular time. India, South Korea, uh, Japan, you know, they're kind of Southeast Asian countries that depend on oil. Their economies depend on that. Uh, we're allies with South Korea and Japan. We are uh, trading partners with India. So it's kind of in our best interest to allow them the opportunity to wean themselves off of that. Turkey, another situation where they've got one foot in the Middle East, one foot in NATO, uh, a real problem for us as we try to uh, to deal with them. Their relationship with Saudi Arabia is uh, tense at this particular time, and they as well need the oil to kind of keep their economy moving and doing things. And, and lastly, Italy and Greece, uh, I mean, they're probably the two worst economies in the uh, in the EU and Europe, and I think we're just uh, allowing that to occur since both seem to have pretty good relationships. I, I think from a significance point of view, we've looked at what are our economic goals with each one of those partners, what are our political goals, and we made a, a decision on sanctions easing that is in the best interest of the United States while still allowing pressure on Iran. Can we discuss a little more the type of pressure that's going to come from our allies in the region, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Israel, given that sanctions are just one arm of diplomatic pressure, what sort of response and support can we expect to see specifically from our 
allies and partners in the Middle East? You know, I think they have limited capability to pressure Iran, and obviously we are their proxy in that regard. Uh, as we hold the economic power and the ability to hold others to the sanctions and weakening the Iranian economy, as, as we did with long-time sanctions before we had the Chikpoa. Uh, I think the Saudis clearly benefit from the sanctions. So they are they're quite happy. They benefit both economically, they benefit with oil flow. Their position in the world will grow a little bit vis-a-vis Iran. And at the same time, it, it takes pressure off of them uh, to try and get things done in other areas. The Turks, I mean, they walk a fine line. I mean, they, they, they share the Kurdish uh, challenge with the Iranians and the Syrians and the Iraqis. They're very tentative in their relationship inside of NATO right now. And I think to have Turkey fall out and fall away would be a real challenge. And so the idea with, with Turkey is we have to, have to walk pretty much a tightrope. Um, we, we need them to stay in NATO. They certainly can lean uh, towards Russia. They can lean towards China. And they can lean towards Iran very, very easily uh, and continue to cause problems in the northern part of Syria uh, with the Kurdish folks who have been our allies. So I think, you know, so that's a delicate balance there. The Israelis, I mean, we are actually executing what I think uh, Israel and Bibi Netanyahu would prefer. They did not support the uh, the agreement uh, on Iranian nuclear issues. They uh, see them and Hezbollah as uh, a continuing looming danger. I think as the relationship between Saudi Arabia and the other Arab nations uh, increases with Israel, it's in their best interest to continue to have pressurized situation with Iran, which allows the Arab countries, who are obviously in an Islamic kind of tension between the two parts of the religion, uh, as well as economic, as well as military. They, they worry about those things. So I think uh, Netanyahu, who is kind of in the catbird seat with what we've done, and will continue to apply pressure to the United States, uh, and will continue to leak information that he has, whether it's old or new, to kind of support the fact that the Iranians are still doing things under the table to support their, their potential programs. Sir, if these sanctions and all our other efforts to punish and pressure Iran are successful and there's you know, continued internal upbreast in the country. Do you see the U.S., does the U.S. have a policy of intervention? Do we want to see regime change in Iran at this point? Or what is our ultimate goal and strategy for the impact of these sanctions in Iran? Well, I think, you know, the, the previous administrations have not had a policy of regime change. And, and I and I would argue that it would be very, very difficult, not just from a military standpoint to affect uh, a military outcome that caused political change, but because the depth of the theocracy is so great at this point in time that I don't think you can eliminate a series of leaders or have a capitulation that wouldn't put something in place that was unknown and not quite know where we would go. Even with the moderates who have been worried about the economy and being more open with the world, they are still hardliners. You also still have the IRGC. They have one purpose, to continue to foment the revolution. And as long as the United States continues to do things that, uh, that allows them to win back the population, like withdrawing from Jikpoa, uh, I think you've seen the demonstrations that are occurring over there. They are rallying the continued hatred of the West and the United States, which fuels the population's you know, support of the regime. And so we have a real challenge with regime change. So I think it would be, it would be foolish 
Now, can we do some punitive things if, if things started to have a problem, if one of our allies had a misstep, if the IRGC did something while we were moving a carrier through? Uh, I think we would be forced to take some military and further economic action. But I, I don't think the United States wants to intervene, and I don't think the, uh, the Iranians want to create a situation that would cause a change in world opinion about the United States withdrawal from the JICPOA. It's just they're, they're in a good place right now, and I think they would be very, very careful. And I think their response to Israel's uh, attack on uh, Hezbollah inside of Syria, where initially you saw some uh, venom towards the United States, they took no action. And I think they uh, are probably pretty guarded in that in both sides, both the United States and the Iranians worried about some misstep causing an escalation and going somewhere where neither country wants to go right now. Can you discuss from the United States perspective the nuclear threat in Iran? If we consider them rational, why is it such a non-negotiable for Iran to possess a nuclear capability? I think the nuclear threat has got uh, multiple lines that you've got to discuss when you talk about. The first thing that would occur if uh, Iran nuclearized and weaponized uh, what nuclear capability they have is it would start a proliferation immediately among the Arab states. Uh, the, the, the fear of Iranian hegemony inside of the, the Sunni world is as great as uh, it is for, uh, for Israel and for others. And so what you would find in, in a region of the world that has uh, decided not to have nuclear weapons, that we would then be in an arms race. And I think very, very rapidly, uh, the, the Saudis could buy nuclear weapons, uh, and we've theorized that they could get them from Pakistan very, very easily uh, and have them uh, almost immediately to react. So the f- number one thing is weaponization of the Iranian nuclear program would probably start an increased proliferation. Second thing, let's just look at it from an economic point of view. The cost imposition on the United States that would occur uh, to protect Israel, to protect the uh, Arab allies in the region, would be even greater uh, than it is with who we protect in Europe, who we protect in the Far East. I mean, the United States really is the nuclear protective capability, the umbrella for most of the world that's out there. And so, you know, every time somebody else is a nuclear power, that's a threat. We now have to engage more missile interceptions, more, you know, and we've done, we decided mostly to do that mobily through Aegis systems and other things like that to move things around. And it just becomes a real challenge to be able to do that, to get uh, basing, to get things in, uh, in the right place. And obviously we don't think they're a stable government, but quite honestly, I think the threat of the Iranians actually using a nuclear weapon is far less than it might be for a North Korea. So, you know, from from our standpoint, there's just there's too many reasons from an economic point of view, from a counterproliferation point of view, from a keeping area of the world uh, free of nuclear weapons point of view. Uh, I think we have the capability, and we shouldn't ever forget this. We're the, probably the single nation who could eliminate their nuclear capability. You know, uh, we, we have the capability militarily to take out their uh, integrated air defense systems and ultimately go in in an air campaign and take out any nuclear capability that exists. So we we have that capability. We don't need to uh, do anything from the deterrence point of view. I think the, uh, the Iranians understand that. Uh, the Israelis, of course, do not have that capability, but they do have the capability 
to start a fight should Iran move towards nuclearization. And, and the, the economic outcomes of, uh, of, a, of a fight in, in Iran as they would move towards nuclearization, clearly it would rock the oil markets, it would rock the stability in the Middle East. And I think you would see the U.S. being blamed again for interventionism as they reacted to, to that uh, if we decided to take military action. So there are no good outcomes for nuclearization. I think it's just the capability that Iran has to do that allows them to negotiate bargain uh, and use that as a threat. Generally, you don't see economic sanctions leading to kinetic activity. Of course, there are historical examples where economic pressure led to military attacks, but do you see that being a significant threat in the case of Iran? Uh, if so, what are the indicators, what are the things we should be looking for that are signaling increased tensions that could ultimately result in a military-to-military conflict with Iran? I, I think the greatest threat from Iran in the near term as a, as a result of our sanctions is obviously they have one of the most capable surrogate uh, terrorist organizations in the world, uh, you know, Hezbollah, that can get out and can do things in a lot of places. They can affect us. They can affect our allies in the region. They can create a great deal of havoc. You also have the IRGC, which is not necessarily uh, loyal to the military leadership. Uh, they are actually loyal to the revolution and their ability to have rogue uh, actions that can start uh, an incident that can lead to a cascade of effects is probably that has always been the greatest worry by Central Command during the time that I was there and during the time since is that something happens as a result of one of these activities that causes a reaction and an escalation. And all of a sudden, we, we are moving quickly uh, along a path that we don't want to go on. And because we don't have good diplomatic relations and because I, I'd say we have a bombastic administration in our own country, there would be a lot of rhetoric going back and forth. So I think the things to worry about are what are the IGRC forces doing? What is Hezbollah doing? And for the United States to escalate and do things, there is a required carrier battlefield presence to be able to do the things that we might want to do. And so if we would end up telegraphing a great deal if we were going to do anything other than a small-scale, punitive kind of operation. It would be very, very obvious, which hopefully would move us towards de-escalation. So one of the great things about having to move a carrier battle group in there is that it becomes visible. People recognize that it can happen, and then it, it this military action, whether it's direct action or whether it's threatened action, then creates an opportunity for some sort of dialogue and diplomacy to de-escalate the situation. So and, and those are the those are the things I would look, look for. First, Hezbollah. Second, IRGC activity that occurs, you know, and it occurs routinely when we move a carrier battle group in near the states or into the into the, the to the choke points. And, uh, and there's always a lot of verbal jousting over that but, and a lot of close encounters. So those, those are the things that are very scary from that standpoint is it's very easy to make a mistake and trigger an escalation that was unintended. Peter, what, if any, impact are you seeing in the markets surrounding the topic of Iran? I think one thing that surprised a lot of the investment community is what's happened to the price of oil. You're seeing it globally drop from $86 down to 70 in terms of rent. You're seeing a similar drop in WTI. Does that have anything to do with Iran, or is that just coincidence? And it 
seems kind of the opposite of what you would expect if the sanctions were truly taking effect and working. You wouldn't expect such a big global drop in oil prices. Well, I think what has happened is the Saudis and the other uh, Arab OPEC nations have, uh, have been pumping uh, in order to take care of that. One, it, uh, there's also a downturn, I think, projected economically, and so there's a predicted glut in the oil market. And so as people look forward to that, they're kind of looking, hey, prices are probably going to go down anyway. From a timing point of view, I think we're lucky. Normally, when we sanction oil and take oil off the shelf, prices drive up, as you know. But I think one of the there's no current threat right now to cutting off oil movement. We've just taken one player who has only been briefly back on the scene in a major way off the shelf for a little while. The other players are making up for that in, in production. But the question is how long can that last? And if we do get a downturn economically globally, uh, it may not have the impact. But threatening the Straits of Hormuz and closing down the oil capacity of the Saudis to be able to distribute, that would be something that I, you know, the Iranians could do to threaten that would actually impose, you know, a, a cost uh, on the oil market is to threaten that and then actually demonstrate that capability. If I can, hey, Frank, um, let me jump in on this. Absolutely wonderful comments. I think the one thing that we haven't really kind of pulled or tried to parse out from this and is subject to a certainly an ongoing conversation that we'll pick up at a later date is really how Russia plays in all of this. You know it as well as anybody else. But I think the the one point you made is absolutely the one point about the U.S. being a Mideast North Africa proxy for both Israel and KSA, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, is absolutely spot on. And it's something that we need to really uh, kind of examine in greater detail at some point, because both Israel and Saudi Arabia can escalate the challenges in the region, as you've described, but neither of them have the capacity to finish. And that's where the United States comes in and our relationships become very, very tentative. And as you indicated, we've got some very strong uh, connective tissue in that part of the world, but we walk a really, really uh, thin line between what is absolutely right for us in our national security objectives and being able to um, validate those potential interests and our actions and measure them against uh, what we think is the, quote, right thing, close quote, to do. It becomes very, very tentative. We've, we've walked that line a whole bunch, but the thing that really hangs over all of our discussions in the Mideast is Russia. So clearly we'll, we'll jump on that topic um, at a future date. I think uh, you're absolutely right, Spider. I mean, they're not a wild card. They are just a uh, a player who takes advantage of what's going on in the world stage. Uh, and so you have to watch them. They're, uh, they're, they're like coyotes that are waiting for somebody to come off a piece of meat or nipping at the back of the herd. They don't have to get involved, but they, they, they're adventurists and they take action and they will they'll get in the game. I mean, I think anything that Putin can do to embarrass the United States and gain a bargaining position for Russia to reemerge, he's is, is going to take that always, uh, whatever the cost. I like the way you laid it out. You know, our engagement in the region relative to Iran can, you know, you know exist in all those different elements of power, but we have to, and then we migrate from talking about Iran and the, you know, the mullahs in charge in Tehran and the, and the form of government that they've created. And then we migrate into how Hezbollah plays a role in the region. And then we migrate into the IRGC and how that, you know, those 
connections that exist within Tehran and in the region in the form of governance, as well as military, as well as terrorism. And then you migrate into how does Russia then ensure that all of that is contained in, in some type of a box and that Tehran knows with certainty that Moscow is going to be there for him. It really is, um, you know, the consequences are enormous and most of those are, are pretty bad outcomes. And, and so, again, we need to really spend some time um, putting a spotlight on this uh, to a greater degree. So thanks for your insights today. No, my pleasure. My pleasure. I look forward to talking to you all again about it. Peter, do you have any other thoughts on this subject? Yeah, one thing I definitely wanted to add, General Kearney pointed it out a little bit, was that we need China's involvement here. And we have this growing world stage where what we're all looking to is how do we negotiate a trade deal with China? How do we get a trade deal with China that is good for the U.S., especially with Chinese data slowing down? And at the same time, we need China's support here in Iran. We need China's support to deal with North Korea. So we're starting to have almost conflicting interests where we might have to give to China on things we don't want to give to get other things. So we've caused a little bit of an issue, I think, with that. And then tying it back, as General Marx has often talked about, how are we viewed within NATO? How are we treating our allies? And by pulling back unilaterally from Jakarta, we once again separate ourselves from some of our European allies. I think it's going to make these trade negotiations and a lot of things that's happening on a macro level more difficult, I think. We are right to do a lot of what we're doing in Iran. The generals bring up great points on why we have to stop their nuclear proliferation, which I completely agree with. Having said that, we live in this awkward world where some of the people that we need help from are not going to be happy with these decisions, and managing that is going to be very tricky. Great. Thank you so much. Rachel, let's go ahead and talk about the midterm elections and how they may impact the market and global risk landscape. General Marks, given the shifting power dynamics in Washington, what is your view of how international leaders will interact with Washington and the, the White House post-midterms? How do you see the results of the midterms impacting our foreign policy and international strategy? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, following the midterms, really kind of three, I would, if I were to bucket this, I, I would say geographically, there are three things that are top of mind, and we routinely touch on those, but they will be topical for quite some time. I don't know when we're going to emerge and and have some type of a resolution. I think these are ongoing requirements. They are China, clearly tariffs, and, and economically how we view our relationship with them, and certainly militarily. And when I look at China, I would say the, the main thing is, you know, they we, we invited them into the World Trade Organization 17 years ago, yet over the course of 17 years, they act as rogue members uh, in terms of participation in the market and that they, it's very difficult for foreign, country, uh, foreign countries and foreign companies to engage in China. There are limits to ownership. There are requirements for joint ventures, requirements for licensing, very strict IT and tech standards, which really goes to IT you know, intellectual property protections. So it's really very difficult. So China is top of mind. And then militarily, certainly we've discussed how they've become really an expeditionary military. And we have to be very, very mindful of their capabilities and what we can do to not only, which we do very well, confront those, but also make it clear that there are things where we need to figure out how to cooperate. So that's number one. Number two, Russia, we've touched on that in this podcast, uh, I think in a way that 
deserves attention in terms of Moscow's influence in the Mideast. Um, incredibly important that we um, figure out that we have a concurrence and a confluence of interests with Russia in the Mideast in some ways, and we need to be able to find those. Clearly, we're at loggerheads relative to Tehran, but we could probably find a solution with Moscow in terms of what's happening in Syria. Uh, the other Russia piece is clearly um, ongoing adventurism in Ukraine that needs to be addressed. And I think the United States, I know the United States could create a global um, coalition that includes the EU and a number of uh, additional global partners that could see a solution in the Ukraine as opposed to what I think is a slow roll in Moscow taking over Ukraine. It could happen. It's not inevitable. We could work on it. And the third thing is uh, Iran uh, and the development of their nukes. Uh, General Kearney did a really fine job laying out what the, what the concerns are, and the primary one being proliferation. If Iran gets nukes, everybody else is going to want nukes. That's not where we want to be. And, and then the cost of, for the United States to stay engaged once that genie's out of the bottle, are, it's prohibitive. There are limits to what we can do, and there are limits to what we can afford. Uh, those are the three things following the midterms. Uh, and so what concerns me is it's not, it's, it's not a, a discussion or a question of who's going to react following, you know, globally, who's going to react following our midterm elections, but who's going to overreact? And that's what, what concerns me. Will China become that much more aggressive uh, relative to our economic pressures? Or is this going to be um, an incident that we have over the course of the next couple of years where tariffs have gone up, we've made it a little more onerous for the Chinese, but they, they play ball because they have to play ball and they're, and they're going to. Or, is, or are we going to see some pressures asymmetrically? In other words, they embrace the fact that there are going to be some economic challenges, but they push and they prod elsewhere in terms of their diplomatic efforts or primarily their military efforts to continue to challenge what I call are these spheres of influence. And China now is really spreading its wings there. Um, my concern for the EU is, will progressive nationalism start to take root as we've seen in the German elections? And will each individual nation start to strike their own deals in order to sustain what they see as their individual national interests that won't necessarily comport with the EU's and the greater body. Um, that's a big time concern. That could happen. So we could see some overreaction in the EU as well. Uh, but so those are the, the primary things in terms of what I think might happen globally on the heels of our midterms. I think what we saw this week in the post-midterm press conference was Trump really laying down a gauntlet. And he offered a token where he said he would work closely with the Democrats. He would try and get policy put in place that in some of what he said made sense that if the Democrats were bringing ideas, that he had the ability to maybe get the Senate to pass. On the other side of that, I think he very clearly made it his mission to effectively go to war if they escalate the investigations, they take on subpoenas. And I think it's going to be not, like nothing we have seen certainly in our lifetime, where it could get very, very ugly. He's clearly setting up by changing his administration with Sessions resigning to be very well prepared to go to war effectively internally. So we're yet to see how that plays out. The positive part of us, I think, and the markets reacted very positively to that press conference on the hopes that 
the Democrats would take that olive branch, that we would find ways to get infrastructure done and to work on other plans that would be good for the economy, that would allow us to negotiate with China, get trade deals. So that is the positive end. And I don't think we'll know for several weeks, maybe not even until people are sworn in in January, how it plays out. But I think the risk is things like the Mueller investigation, if the Democrats push very hard on that, to me it was a very clear indication that Trump, you know, who's often been called a street brawler really in his past in his business life, plays that sort of hardball. And I think it will make what we saw in the first two years, although somewhat contentious from time to time, look like child's play. So I hope we don't get to that. But I think that's something the markets have to battle with is how does this all work? And none of it helps as we have so many global deals that we have to make. That if our own house isn't in order, it will be very difficult to achieve good deals globally. And we may even risk, as we turn more and more insular, deals get struck around us, which would be very problematic for the long-term health of the country. But, you know, Peter, I think what, what we'll see in the very short term and as you've laid out, it, it could even happen during the period of the lame duck Congress before the changeover in January, is I think the arc of our global engagement won't change. In fact, the pace might increase. Um, the scale might increase a little bit. But I think there are some significant issues internationally that both houses of Congress and both sides of the aisle will embrace as being in our best national interest. I think most of the contention, the vitriol, um, the legislation and the investigation that will take place and will dominate will be uh, domestically. So I think on the heels of the Mueller investigation, I think that hopefully tea leaves are that it might wrap up here shortly. We may see a continuation of policies globally, and but we're going to see a lot of dust being kicked up on domestic issues. I think that would be a great outcome. So hopefully that's what we get. Well, thank you very much to Rachel, Peter, Lieutenant General Kearney, and Major General Marks for this conversation. Academy Securities is a service-disabled, veteran-owned investment bank with a social mission to hire, train, and mentor military veterans to develop careers in finance. We greatly enjoy sharing our geopolitical insights with our friends and clients. If you have an interest in engaging our experts directly, please email us at info at academysecurities.com. Thank you very much to our listeners for giving us the time today. My name is Andrew Robinson, and I look forward to speaking to you again soon.